Hey, my name's Britt, and this is your Only Black Friend podcast. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to your Only Black Friend podcast. And before we get started with today's episode, I just wanted to say a quick thank you to everyone who has listened so far to the first four episodes. It means so much that so many people are resonating with my story, with others' stories, and want to hear more, and I cannot wait to deliver. So with all that being said, let's get started. Over the summer, I was fortunate enough to sit down with my grandfather, Lewis Moore, who just so happens to be a local celebrity in Minneapolis, Minnesota right now. My grandfather is a cyclist and has been ever since I was born, which was about 28 years ago. And he is the president of the Major Taylor Cycling Club of Minnesota. How cool is that? My grandfather has also always been a pillar in the community. It's actually kind of funny. Whenever I come to town, everywhere that I go with my grandfather, someone knows him or knows of him or knows my aunt or knows my uncle. So it's kind of cool. I low-key have a famous person in my family. I wanted to take the time to interview my grandfather because he has always instilled so much wisdom to me. He has always taught me so much history, Black history, that I wasn't getting from my schooling. My grandfather have always had a really special bond, and I can ask him anything, and he always answers. So I wanted to get his perspective on being an only and the Black experience that he went through at my age. And so I wanted to ask him, what do you want people to know? What has always been on your mind that you feel like people who are not Black should gain a better understanding of. And this is what he had to say. The Black experience for me has been an awakening of how people who are not Black think about people who are trying to understand people of color and living in a environments where when I went to high school, the population of Minneapolis of African-Americans of Minneapolis-St. Paul was 2% of the population. So I had to spend a lot of time trying to figure my way around through the system, whether it was school or work or friendships or whatever, that would benefit me mm-hmm. as well as those that associate with me. So having been here a long time, I learned early on that white folks would have a definition of Black people that was totally different than what we would ever think they would have a definition of us. I remember when I first moved in the neighborhood over there on 43rd and 3rd, I was out in the alley playing with a little white kid down the street. The neighbor came out and asked who I was, where I lived, and I said, I live right there, 44, 43-23rd Avenue. Oh, he said. And then he started calling me Willie Mays. Willie Mays was a baseball player, very well known in the 50s and 60s. And because I told him my name was Louie, but he couldn't get beyond Willie. And so anytime he saw me, I was Willie because he could associate with Willie Mays, but he couldn't associate with his little new black name. So I went to a high school that was probably, has a, had probably at that time, one of the higher African-American populations in the city outside of maybe North High. And the experience of going to high school at Central, Central High School in Minneapolis, was really not too bad because... White kids and black kids got along really well. This is like in the late 50s and early 60s. So when schools let out, all the white kids would go out the west end of the building, cross over to Nicollet Avenue and go over where they live. All the black kids would go out the east end of the building, 
the Fourth Avenue, Fifth Avenue, Third Avenue, right in the black neighborhood. But while in school and while participating in sports and other things, I would say for the most part, the majority of us all got along. So that was a good experience. Then going away to college at University of Wisconsin River Falls, where I was one of five out of 2,000 students, one of five black students, where many of the students were scared of the five of us. I remember going to a hotel in downtown River Falls Hotel, in downtown River Falls, Wisconsin. And the five of us, of which two came from Panama, the other one was a, he just got out of the military, he was in the Marines, and the other person was a young woman who was next. And the five of us sat at a table to have some coats, and the manager of the hotel came over and said that we couldn't conjugate in this hotel because he, we were making his patrons nervous. So... I'm kind of thinking, maybe I don't want to go to River Falls, but I did for two years. But spent an awful lot of time explaining who I was and why I was there. But then I ended up doing that really my whole life. In a work situation and buying this house and raising your mama and your sister and brother. Because you had to always kind of defend yourself. Not defend yourself, but explain yourself. You know, I remember going to a job once. For Wonder Bread. Remember Wonder Bread? Well, I was the first black bread salesman in the Twin Cities, the very first. And when I went to start the job, the old white man that was my supervisor brought me in his office and sat me down and said, Now you know, you're the first. I said, Yeah. Got to make sure you brush your teeth. You know, your hair has got to be combed, you know, and you got to be nice to the people. And I said, Well, I do all those things every day. So that's not something that I wouldn't. Do. But that was his perception of black people. That's the way he was telling me. You know, that was his perception of somebody black coming into to work in a company that had never had black people, except, you know, maybe bakers or maintenance people, because I was going to be in the field sales. And at that point, I, that, that really opened my eyes because I knew exactly what most of these people were thinking when they had any kind of communication with me. Mm-hmm. And I got pretty good at guessing what, they, what was on their minds. He might be too smart for his britches. I'm going to have to watch my language. I'm going to try to have to carry on a conventional conversation with him because he seemed to be able to speak good basic English. You know, being forced to communicate and socialize with somebody that they don't communicate and socialize with. And that happened in many jobs, many positions I had where I was kind of a pioneer at first. And, you know, for most companies, it would say, see, we got one. We got one. But communication was a problem with, with all these companies, one shape, or, one way, shape, or form. When I worked at Target, I was hired as the first management. I ran a department with 60 women. They would unload the trucks with all of the product that they would sell at Target. We'd come down conveyor belts. And these ladies would have to price, and I would have to supervise their schedules, keep them motivated, you know, do all the promoting and all the hiring, you know, all of that kind of stuff. For all the 60 women, I probably had 20 to 25 that quit. And at least 10 of them came to me and said, well, you know, I've, I've been here for 12, 13 years. I don't really want to quit, but my husband says I have to quit because I can't work for a black man. And I, you know, it, was, it wasn't astonishing to me. It was disappointing to me, but it wasn't astonishing. And so, you know, I had to find a way to communicate with those that stayed. And this is out at Fridley, which is one of the northern suburbs, which is... At that time, there were more black people living out there at all. But then I started hiring some black people from out of the city, bringing them out there. Well, they didn't like that either. I had told the you know, plan manager that's what I was going to do. He did try to discourage me, but I said there were a few folks that I, I know that need jobs. They want to come out and work here. 
So it was interesting to be in that environment, be in that situation. I mean, even when I went to work for Congressman Sable, they never had a black full-time community representative for the congressman. And the fact that I was a little older than most hirees they had done in the past, he and I got along great because we were kind of in the same age category. So we had a lot to talk about. And he wasn't a great talker, but he had actually communicated well. And he had never had any kind of black representative for the black community. So I did all of that. So, you know, all these firsts, were, were, you know, fascinating experiences, but it really taught me that white America has a long way to go understand people of color. Do you ever think that they willfully understand us? Well, most of the people that I dealt with are now, of course, in my age range, and they are people who have thought that same way their whole lives. You know, mm -hmm. I think I've mentioned to you, I have a little more faith in the younger generation because they are now more communicative when it comes to dealing with people of color, which was demonstrated last year during the demonstration for George Floyd's murder. So there's a little more opportunity now, I think, for people to begin to understand each other a little better. And as I think I've mentioned to you before, once you get rid of my generation, because all the old geezers that are around now, yeah. never going to change. They're never going to change. They're never going to change. You know, like your grandmother and I are involved in this Covenants project, which was a situation that was put together back in the 20s in the Twin Cities where neighborhoods, people who lived in neighborhoods were required to sign uh, documents that said you will not sell your house to anybody other than a white person. So you were not going to be able to move into a white neighborhood because they have legal documents that you can't move into the white neighborhood. We have a house down the street here at the Lee House, one block, 416, and uh, Columbus. They moved in in 1932, back when it was really a company. And people demonstrated in front of their house almost every day for a year. Every weekend, there'd be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people out there in front of the house using the N-word, telling them to get out, throwing stuff at the house. It got to be such a carnival that they had ice cream trucks come and probably early versions of food trucks come. And, and it was like a big carnival. And in order for Mr. Lee to go to work, he's fellow postal workers. He works at the post office. They'd have to come out in the morning and escort him out of the house so he'd get to work and escort his daughter to school, which was just down the street, because these people were so vehement about him being in the neighborhood. And he told me he wasn't going nowhere. He stayed there almost two years before he moved. And I think he moved because his daughter had to go to another school. So, you know, this isn't just Minneapolis, although in Minneapolis it was a little different than the rest of the country. Up until George Floyd's murder last year, they, they thought they were living in a bubble. They thought they were really nice people. And, you know, black folks are nice ones. They don't live next to me. Black folks are okay as long as I don't have to socialize with them. My kid doesn't kids, so I have to go to school with them. So they lived in that bubble until this happened up here on 38th in Chicago. And it did wake up some of them. I have to say that, but people in my age bracket, nah, no, they, they still don't even understand what happened and still don't understand. They still don't understand why they're seeing all these commercials with black women and white men and, you know, black children and white children playing together and all these things that have gone on now in the last couple of years to try to show that, you know, the, the uh, population in the country has changed. It's been for me a life of really just trying to educate people, if not just so that I can maneuver and that I can you know, live within the realm of life that I wanted to live in and the kind of jobs I had. White people asking stupid questions. So I have spent most of my life, you know, doing that. And, and 
from black people say, well, you know, you just catering to them. No, I'm not catering to them. I'm trying to make sure they understand. But, you know, all we can do is continue to move forward as best we can with young people like yourself, and your friends, and young people up here who have tried to figure out what needs to be done to make sure society works for everybody. How do you envision the future? Opportunity for race relations to be on a different level. Because as I previously mentioned, the young people seem to kind of have an idea of what this is all about now. And a lot of them are very passionate about it. Especially these local white kids are really passionate about it. Even to the point where they're really overboard. But if we can get leadership and government that is willing to accept that kind of a change, because right now we don't have it. I mean, it's totally off base. They don't, they don't know what to do, how to do, they don't know anything. We can get rid of the current leadership in government that thinks the way they think. We may be able to, to move forward and be able to do the things that people want to see happen. Because no matter what happens, this is a democracy. Government's always going to be a part of your life. And that's not a bad thing because somebody's got to organize it. That's, that's really what it is, is organization of life in America. But we have to get above and beyond all this crazy politics and crazy political shenanigans that keep going on and the incessant lying that happens on a daily basis. All of that's got to be curtailed to, to make society work. Now, if you go back to the 1970s, I would say in the 70s were probably one of the best decades of race relations that we've ever had in this country. Right after Martin Luther King got killed, in 68, and Kennedy got killed. The economy was very tough in the early 70s, began to, but began to moderate. The music scene was really good in the 70s because they had this disco stuff going on, and it was popular with both black and white. So that really got people to be together more and, and do things together more. The 70s, mother and I would have parties here at the house for Christmas. House would be packed, you know. Be 60, 65% black, 30, 35% white. And everybody be having a good time and just, you know, enjoying themselves at three, four, five o'clock in the morning. You know, I'm excited for the future so people can get back to where they were in the 70s. I'm excited for the future. I think what I've been noticing in my, not necessarily circles, but like, you know, I'm on different types of social media than you are and the aunties on and all this stuff, but. The people that I have been following, you know, my age and younger are like, they're ready for a revolution. They're ready for stuff to completely change and just burn everything down and start over again. How do you feel about that? Well, we had a revolution in the late 60s and early 70s with the hippie movement and, and all of, that, all of what was going on at that time, which, as I said, probably led to a more congenial late 70s. Yeah, before Reagan came in. So I am not, I would not be surprised. I don't necessarily think burning stuff down is the answer, but I do think challenging the authority is the answer, which means you have to challenge the politicians and the system. You have to challenge the Supreme Court. You have to challenge them because if they're doing things that, that you know are wrong, they need to change. But destruction of property is, is not the answer because once you start destroying property, you're taking away people's livelihoods. You're taking away people's ability to, you know, keep their families up and running and functioning, supporting them. And you, you've got to have something out there that you can go to every once in a while, whether it's a grocery store or a club yeah. or something, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's going to change in the next five to 10 years anyway. I think if people learn, to, especially young people, they learn to work within the political system, I think they can change a lot.
that's what needs to change physically yeah. you don't need to change things there you just need to, to to change the thinking and the idea and the way things are done by those in, in charge meet people don't be shy to ask questions no matter what color they are and they should be able to answer your questions because once we all know how we think and how we all you know, get a little history about people, that just makes society better. And they don't have to go through all the stuff I went through and your mother went through or your grandmother went through or your daddy went through. Because they, the, the, the young generation has got to be the one that you really got to be able to depend on for the future. And like I said, I'm confident. I, I think the young generation is really going to step forward and do what they need to do to make this all work. Hey everyone, thank you so much for tuning in to Your Only Black Friend podcast. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Your Only Black Friend podcast. And if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, I kindly, kindly ask you if you could please leave a review, maybe some five stars. That would be phenomenal because that will help push this podcast to more people. And with that, I'll see you all next time.